this Warriors Live podcast 2023 featuring Fonzie, uh, off-season bonus episode. Um, Will Evans here with Fonzie um, to chat about, there's a little bit of Warriors news breaking today, but uh, predominantly to talk about some uh, other aspects of the rugby league spectrum. Um, Fonz, how are you, mate? Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too, Will. It's been a while since we uh, caught up post the loss to Brisbane in the prelim and the grand finals played out. And you've been uh, guesting on some other pods. Heard you with Keithy last week. Good, good listen that one. And um, it's a good time for us to connect as well because, as you will all probably know by the time you listen to this, Webby has been extended by the club out to 2028, uh, which something we all expected and were calling for. But it's great to know it's happened and. You know, as as always with Webby, uh, what he said matched what he does. Uh, he said he wanted to be a long-term coach here. He's made it happen before we hit pre-season next year. Um, it's good for the club in so many ways. And I imagine for, you know, now retaining and attracting players going forward, we're in a really, really good position. Um, you got a smile on your face around this, Will? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, we wouldn't want anyone else in charge. And to have him locked in for the next five seasons, uh, taking his reign, if he sees out the contract, of course, to six years, which should equal uh, Ivan Cleary's record stint at the helm. Um, yeah, just a reflection of, of uh, what he achieved in year one. Um, you know, it's a bit of a coup for the Warriors, I think, to lock him in for that long because he was sure to be in, you know, high demand if he if he stuck with that three-year contract i'm sure other clubs have come calling but it's uh it's great to see his level of commitment to the club and building something long term and uh yeah that's just uh, a great piece of news to be getting this uh yeah this far out from the preseason starting and we're going to do some kind of season review slash um, sort of forward-looking pod in the next month, I guess. We'll probably shortly after the November 1 official season end um, where we'll look back at that cracking first year and um, we can look at, you know, what Webby's got to do now going forward as he settles into this long-term role. Uh, but today, today's a bit different. Um, wanted to talk in particular about... Um, NRL expansion off the back of the pod you did with Keith last week where you looked at the four different um, viable expansion options. One of them was that... That was Rugby League Therapy, uh, by the way, if anyone wants to check out uh, Keith Whitelock's outstanding uh, fledgling new pod. Um, And, yeah, he really does uh, zero in on on some of those sort of issues in International Rugby League, so give that a follow and a listen. Yeah, it's a really good pod. Needs a bit more swearing, I reckon, but it's a it's a good pod. Um, he, um, so you and he ran through the four expansion vids, and I think Papua New Guinea was the last one you guys looked at, and I think you both rated it third or um, you know one of the lower bids, and that has been just is that right? Personal, yeah, just as a personal preference, though, not as uh, you know the likelihood of happening or. Um, yeah, you know anything else around it? Just just a purely personal preference. Yeah, and uh, I noticed last week there was a bit of talk. Um, some, I think it was Michelle Bishop, the journalist in Brizzy, said that she had mail that PNG was going to get the nod and get the nod soon, and that sparked a bit of a furor 
um, on Twitter and elsewhere um, where there was a, a lot of people um, raising, you know, what they saw as fatal fl flaws with the idea of a PNG team and the beard. And um, I didn't have the time or energy to engage with all of those, but I did want to have, a you know, some time here to just step out why I think the PNG bit is a good idea and what it would mean for the game. And um, I mean, I'm not necessarily seeking to persuade everyone, but this is a really unique um, bid where there are so many different dimensions. It is actually quite hard to put it all together and understand what this bid is about and what it looks like. And so it's not surprising to me that a lot of people have that initial reaction of, um, oh, that won't work because of X. I've been someone who's been keen on this idea for a long time. Uh, I have a probably slightly, um, you know, different position to most, which is I happen to have quite a few friends who are diplomats um, and who are involved in the diplomatic community or have been. And so I've got a good insight from them about the Australia PNG diplomatic relationship and how it plays into the broader geopolitical context that exists. And some of these people have been telling me for a long time that the single best thing the Australian government could do is fund an NRL team in Papua New Guinea. And they've explained to me their logic for that over the years. And so now that it's actually on the table, it's, it seems like a, a no-brainer to me. And so I just thought a um, bit of an off-season uh, departure from normal fare, I'd step that through. So, Will, can you play the role of um, devil's advocate and sort of push back on me so that I sort of tease out the arguments as best I can? Yeah, sure can. I mean, I think I, I mentioned on on Keith's podcast last week that uh, all, a lot of this is over my head and, um, yeah, a lot of my reservations, I guess, are either unfounded or slightly uh, uneducated, but uh, I'll certainly certainly ask the questions and um yeah and you can explain why it's why it's a slam dunk um just worth noting as well that i, I guess it was the day after uh the news broke that that, that the uh it looked like the the bid was going to be announced fairly imminently uh the the png nrl bid boss andrew hill uh, did publicly deny that they're, they're about to get granted the license so um yeah i'm not sure how accurate that speculation was about a an announcement being imminent, but um, yeah, it's certainly, certainly in the pipeline by the sense of it. Yeah, that sounded a bit like when the coach says he's got full support of the board, doesn't it? That, that yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Same okay, so let's start with this. All right, what? Why do we want to expand at all, Will? Why, why do? Why do we need to expand? Why do we want to expand at all, anywhere? Well, immediately, you know, the seventeen teams we want. 18 teams for an extra game for the broadcast deal. Um, that's a fairly obvious one, but I think just expanding rugby league's footprint, um, yeah, uh, is a good thing for the code. And that's, that's the way that obviously Peter Valandis and uh, Andrew Abdo have been talking for some time. And um, yeah, all for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm from the camp of expansions. The more expansion you can do, the better, right? If we could have more professional rugby league teams in the world, that'd be a good thing. Uh, it'd be good because it'd make the game more resilient, stronger, more profitable. Um, it'd sort of lead to things like 
enhanced international competition, um, more resilience too. I mean, I don't forget when the game nearly died off the back of Super League. And um, I think expansion is a big part of building resilience so that it can withstand those kinds of shocks and things that happen. So if we start with the, you know, agreed position that generally speaking, expansion is a good thing for the game, then let me ask you this next question, right? What are the constraints on expansion? Why don't we have 25 teams now, 30 teams? What What are the things that constrain us expanding? Uh, well, one is player depth. Um, yep. You know, I think that was and probably maybe a bit unfairly, but when we expanded to 20 teams in uh, 1995, that was one of the uh, the downsides pointed to. It yep. was a fairly bottom-heavy competition. And, um, but yeah, the Super League um, will kind of, you know, ruin any hope of that actually working out and over the you know next few years as a viable competition. Um, yeah, money. I mean, costs, yep. costs money to set up and run a football club and, you know, just all the infrastructure required, especially in new... Um, in new markets so and you know just starting up and, and being successful i mean the dolphins first season was regarded as a resounding success and they start and they finished 13th so you know it is tough to to come in and, and be successful straight off the bat not everyone's going to be a melbourne storm so um you know those are the first few that come to mind I'm sure you got a few more no they're the two right um i mean if you look at the nrl's current situation it it is in too narrow a demographic footprint, right? It's on the east coast of Australia, it's in New Zealand, um, in Auckland, which is starting to take off. But, you know, at the end of the day, Auckland's a city of a million people. That's way too narrow a demographic footprint to be taking into the next century. So, I mean, we need expansion. We should have had it already. The things that stop it happening are money and players, because ultimately the players are the product and the product um, if the product suffers, the whole thing goes down. Yep. So when we're looking at expansion, you have to get around those constraints, right? You have to get around the, the money and the player constraints. So let's start with money. Um, Redcliffe got the nod because Fox and Nine agreed to pay more in TV rights than it cost to set up Redcliffe and pay them an annual NRL grant. Simple as that. You remember the media before... Redcliffe were announced, there was Volandis talking to the um, pay TV boss, talking to, you know, the Aussie Fox lead. And I think, was it 15 mil a year more he got from Fox? Um, probably got something from nine two. And the equation is pretty straightforward. If the broadcaster will pay more than the NRL grant to the club, then it's a net profit, right? You don't have to take money off anyone else to have the new team and the new team gets up. Simple as that. That's the the money equation at the moment um now so when we go to people talk about perth people talk about new zealand too right and the, the harsh truth of it is unless having that team is going to generate more money through broadcasting then it costs in terms of the nrl grant it will not get a start and the reason it won't get a start is because the other nrl clubs are not going to give up money just for the sake of having a perth team or New Zealand two team. I mean, can we pretty much agree that that's right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, fairly obvious. So there wouldn't be an extra um, piece of the pie for that ninth game per weekend straight off the bat for immediately for an 18th team. So you you will get um, it's a little bit 
tricky because what happens is with 17 with 17 teams you actually get um you get more games but you've got the buy if that makes sense so like they added a round yeah, basically true. and this, then yeah there's two two extra rounds this year yeah so yeah. that's yeah so you're going to lose the buy but they'll probably take off a round or two so you will get an uplift just straight away from having 18 teams but because I think in total there'll probably be slightly more games and there won't be the buy, but it's not a whole extra game a week, if that makes sense, because you're going to lose those two rounds. Um, But, yeah, I mean, so I think you can say that there's a natural lift for any expansion bid because it's better to have 18 than 17, right? But that's that's the same for whichever bid gets up. Yeah, so that's... that's Just just to um, to quantify that, there's been 192 games per season for... The last long time in this year, there was 204 regular season games, an extra 12 games. An extra 12 games. So I think what would happen if you went to 18, you'd probably end up with an extra 20 minus 12. And you know what I mean? Like they take a round off and um, a couple of rounds off and you'd end up there. So, but yeah, I think any um, any team's going to benefit from going to 18, right? That's not a, not a thing. But unless... A broadcaster wants to pay 20 million bucks more on their TV deal, all things equal, for Perth. It's not going to be Perth, right? And unless a broadcaster wants to pay 20 million bucks more a year for a New Zealand 2 team, there's not going to be New Zealand 2. Um, that's just the harsh reality of it. Maybe it's 15 mil, maybe it's 17, maybe it's 20. It's something like that. The, um, um, the New Zealand, just on the New Zealand one of uh, Sky Sports' uh, deal probably is, is makes that slightly different, I guess. Um, well, not the... not really in the sense that New Zealand's a bit um, – you've got to add the extra value you get out of the Aussie deal, selling a second New Zealand team into Aussie, plus the extra value you get out of the Sky deal. But between the broadcasters, whoever they might be, you've got to find 15, 20 mil. If you don't, forget about it because West Tigers, Cronulla and Gold Coast aren't giving up any of their money from the central pot for an expansion team. It's just not going to happen. Right. So because um, we've also got to remember that the vast majority of the NRL's money, including the clubs, comes from broadcast revenue. Crowds. Yeah, that's all good. That's kind of the icing on the cake. Sponsorship, the same. Broadcasting revenue is the lifeblood of rugby league. Now, on the money side, let's look at this P&G bid. So do you know who the bid, who the bid team is? Uh, no, I don't, don't really know too much about there. It's it's the Papua New Guinea national government, oh, okay. right? So it's not a consortium of random businessmen. It's not a um, you know some PNG rugby league administrator who wants to turn his amateur. This is the PNG national government is leading this bid. Okay, so they are the ones applying to the NRL, the national government of PNG, to have a team in the NRL. And the Australian government is saying, we will help you, PNG government, to do that by giving, reportedly, 25 mil a year. Now, 25 mil a year is 10 million more than the NRL grant to clubs. In other words, if the Australian government gave 20 or 25 million, straight away, there's no money needing to come out of the central pot to fund that team. It's self-funding, yep, in that sense. Um, Now... The Australian government gives the Papua New Guinean government about 500 million a year in project-related aid. 
So the idea that they would give 25 million to this project, right, is a drop in the ocean. It's about 5% of the aid budget they give. They give that aid budget to things like infrastructure projects, building roads, um, all these sorts of things, right, schools. So what they're really saying is we'll take 5% of what we give you now and allocate it to this project because you, the PNG government, asked us to, right? It's as simple as that, yeah? So money's not a problem here. As long as we believe the Australian government will give that money, right, money's not a problem. So that's where the geopolitical thing comes in, right? Because a lot of people have said, well, how solid's that money? What if there's a change of government? What if, you know, the next government doesn't want to give money to fund rugby league? Now, remember, governments of every type, Labor, Liberal, here in Australia, have given about $500 million to PNG projects for the last 30 years. Right. That's a consistent flow that doesn't change. There's no change in that, right? So the only the risk is not that one of the governments will say we don't want to give money to PNG. It's that they might say this project is not a worthwhile project to give it to. That's the only risk. Yep. Now remember the PNG government's the one asking for it here. So the PNG is telling our government that's what they would like the money to go to. So it'd be our government saying, no, we know better than you, PNG government, and we're not going to fund that project, right? That's the first thing. And it's going to be universally popular there. So there'd be a massive call. But the next thing is the geopolitical context with um, China expanding into the Pacific and recent deals that China's done in the Pacific, which I could go into at length, but it's not a political podcast, make it very, very clear to anyone who is paying attention that there is in Australia very strong bipartisan support for the idea that China's influence needs to be counted and that we are not going to match them in what's called hard diplomacy. And so we need to take initiative in areas like soft diplomacy and building people-to-people -people bridges through things like sport are your classic soft diplomacy tactics. And um, the current Labor government with Albo is the one championing this. But again, anyone who pays any attention knows that the Liberal government previously and likely future are even more um, concerned, let's say, about managing China in the Pacific than Labor of the two. So I see no possible um, or no realistic scenario where that geopolitical positioning changes to the point where the Australian government decides it's not worth spending 5% of the PNG aid budget on this project when the PNG government is specifically asking me to. Right? I just don't see that as a risk. Now, it, politics is a funny thing. Things can change. But the underlying sort of drivers of this are bipartisan in Australia and they're long-term. Right? China's not going away. It's a long-term issue that's going to need to be managed. Now, I'd also sort of... Um, ask people to think about the money that if the government's funding this and we say, well, there's some risk around the government changing its mind, right? You've got to remember two broadcasters fund the other 17 teams. If Channel 9 and Fox decide they don't want a team in Redcliffe, that team will go, right? If the um, free-to-air TV model dies and that's on the cards like <laughs> it's definitely on the cards or if the fox subscription model gets challenged 
by streaming services and so on. It's totally possible that in one or two broadcast deals time, we're 200 million down on where we are now. And those broadcasters will go, yeah, we're only giving you this much. And to be honest, these are the teams that we don't see value for money in funding through our broadcast deal, right? So the idea that somebody funded through the government through this long-term Papua New Guinea aid program, which has bipartisan support, the idea that that's somehow super risky and could change at any minute, and the idea that the revenue streams of Channel 9 and Fox into the game that support the 17 teams at the current budgets, that that's completely risk-free is just wrong, right? In fact, I would bet that the Australian government is pumping money into PNG a lot longer than Channel 9's pumping money into Cronulla, right, as, a, as an example. Yep. Now, of course, there'll be other broadcast revenue sources that exist, but who knows what they're going to look like, what they're going to be like. So I think this government changing its mind thing, you know, is, while it's not a, a non-issue, it's way overblown and it's because people don't understand the level of funding from Australia to Papua New Guinea. In fact, probably a lot of listeners here don't know that Australia ran Papua New Guinea until 1975. Like, you don't understand that. Yeah, yeah, and I only know that because of my interest in rugby league history. So, yeah, uh, yeah, that's quite fascinating. So, like, my on my mum's side, her uncle is a full-blown Aussie, Aussie Australian, ran a coffee plantation until 1975 when he left, right, um, in Papua New Guinea. So it was basically an Australian protectorate until that time. So ever since then, this aid and the linkage has been ongoing. So that's not going to change anytime soon. Um, So we said the constraint is money. Well, this bid, unlike the other bids, has no money constraint. The money constraint is solved, right? We don't need to ensure that we have a broadcasting value proposition that is 20 million bucks. It's there. It's done. So any pushback on that? before I talk about players? No, I mean, you know, I was taking everything at face value there. It seems like the funding side of things is more stable than just about any club in the, in the comp. Well, and not just that, right? Like, as the NRL, I actually think it brings more resilience to the overall comp when you've got some clubs who are funded by one revenue source and others by this other revenue source because it means if the world goes to hell in terms of broadcast revenue... At least you've got one club who's not affected by that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, to me, it's not obvious at all that that's a problem. It might even be a strength for the NRL. Okay, so let's talk about players. Um, do you know how many people live in Papua New Guinea? Um, no, I don't off the Guess. top of my head. Guess. Guess. Oh, it's probably, what, 10 million or something? Yeah, or... hang on. It's about 11 mil. Yeah. So there's two times as many people as New Zealand. It's about the size of New South Wales and Queensland combined, you know, getting there. Um, And rugby league is the national sport to the point where it's a mandatory part of the school curriculum. You know, you've got reading, writing, maths, rugby league in the schools. It's, I've been there, I've been to Papua New Guinea and traveled, you know, around it reasonably extensively. And it is unbelievable. Think of the most rugby or league town in New Zealand, like the most, right? And that would be the least in Papua New Guinea. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like it is just ubiquitous, right? So the number of kids probably barefoot with, you know, um, uh, insufficient nutrition in a lot of cases 
that are picking up rugby balls over there, I would say that it has the highest participation of rugby of either code of any country in the world. There are the most people throwing footies around in that country compared to any country in the world. Rugby of either code. You can't prove that because no one read, there's not registered players there, right? It's just all grassroots. But you've got 10, 11 million people who do nothing pretty much but play rugby league and try and feed themselves. You know what I mean? And so the I think Australia, New Zealand, and a lot of first world countries are increasingly struggling to maintain um, their participation base in full contact sports because it's just not the way society is going. Um, this is the this is the single biggest untapped resource of people who just want to play rugby league or rugby any, anything anywhere in the world. Right? It's right on the doorstep. The the reason we don't see large numbers of players coming through to the professional system here and in Super League, we do see quite a few, as you all know, Olams and so on, AJ, um, is for three reasons. One is they don't have high-performance pathways there, right? The Hunters was the first step involved in trying to change that, and that's helped. But you can have, you know, two million kids, which they, they literally do, playing rugby league, if you can't get them into a high-performance funnel at some point, they never get to a level where they can be professional. So that that layer has been missing and it's only just starting to be filled. The other one's visa issues. So I don't know quite where they're up to, but it's always been this thing where um, it's very, very hard for someone to Papua New Guinea to get a visa to Australia. And so as a result, unless basically they were getting paid, you know, full-time salary wage from an NRL club, they couldn't come in on a development contract or they couldn't come in on a, because um, the government just wouldn't have it because frankly, probably they didn't want mass migration from one of the poorest countries in the world to um, to Australia. So um, there's been that issue. With the federal government supporting the bid, all that will get solved, right? It just logically will. And so if you can, if you can hothouse the top 5% of the millions of people, millions of kids playing rugby league in Papua New Guinea into a semi-decent development pathway, I have no doubt you can have five to 10 NRL teams worth of talent coming out of there in 20 years, right? It, it is like, a, I just, New Zealand has, I think it's something like 40,000 registered rugby league players, right? They've got 20 times that, 20 times that. Right, so it's just a matter of putting that layer over the top and getting them through. So to me, in terms of players, these guys actually enable future expansion of the code. They might enable expansion of another three, four, five teams down the line because of the volume of players they can bring in over time. Now, if we look at some other bids, uh, let's say Perth, right? Now, I think Melbourne, you and Keith, I, I heard you say Melbourne just had their fifth NRL player, homegrown, ever. Uh, far longer, yeah. Yep. Let, let's say Perth is 10 times better than Melbourne at bringing players through. They're still not going to stand up a team. They're not, they're not going to generate, they're not going to wash their own face in the player sense, right? And there's not a lot of prospect of them ever really doing that anytime soon because the base is not there. There's 5,000 5, registered players in Perth. Even if we kick that up to 10, right, because of the presence of an NRL team. We're talking order of magnitude difference. There's a million. It would literally be a million in Papua New Guinea. Now, I understand that one high-performance player is not the same as a million, um, you know, players in 
effectively rural fields playing, right? But my point is that if you're looking anything beyond the very short term in terms of players, Papua New Guinea is an, an enabler of other expansion rather than a detractor. Um, New Zealand too as well. Uh, I, I've no doubt New Zealand too, like New Zealand already generates more players than there are teams in New Zealand than the Warriors. But how many more players are you going to get from having a second New Zealand team? You're going to get some more, but we've already got players from all over New Zealand going to Aussie clubs. So how many more are you going to get? You're going to get another 30 to make a squad, maybe. You're not going to get another 100, are you? I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I think having another team over here uh, just gives another avenue for kids that might be lost to rugby. Um, yep. That sort of thing. But And, yeah, and, and we all know how, how much of a presence New Zealand players or New Zealand-born players have in the NRL already, but uh, it's not going to, I guess, explode uh, numbers-wise straight off the bat. And, and this is the time to make a really important point, right? Because Papua New Guinea will wash its own face with money, right, and in anything other than the very short term, I think, will wash its own face with players, there's no either-or. There's no sense where it's if I have Papua New Guinea in the comp, I can't have New Zealand too or I can't have Perth. They're not – because it's self-sustaining – in money and the player sense, it actually complements other expansion. So if Perth and New Zealand do stack up in the sense that they allow an extra 20 million in broadcast rights and they stack up in the sense that they can generate enough players not to degrade the comp too bad, then Papua New Guinea doesn't hurt them. I would say in the medium term it actually helps them because of the potential um, player input coming in and the fact that it's a different revenue source. So. All of the people saying, oh, it's PNG, it should be Perth. Yeah, I, I don't see it as an either or. We can have both. It might be that PNG getting the go now delays Perth four years, right, or something like that, um, because the government money's on the table now and we grab it while we can get going. But it doesn't in anything like, I mean, we've waited 100 and 135 years or something to get a team up in Perth. If we have to wait four years, not the end of the world, right? And in the meantime, like I say, we've started activating a country of 11 million people, which with ubiquitous rugby league participation on our doorstep, ready to roll. So I don't see that money or players act as a constraint to PNG so that, and I don't see PNG as zero sum with any of the other bids because of those reasons. So I'll stop there. So what do you think about that? Uh, I certainly take all the points and I just did want to touch on this and try and phrase it properly, but um, I don't think necessarily, I'm sure it wouldn't in the long term, but your uh, volume of, of players doesn't necessarily mean, you know, automatic on-field success. I know PNG no. is, uh, uh, they love their rugby league. There's been some very good players, Marcus by uh in particular justin Olam more recently i mean there is guys like alex johnson adrian lamb but for all intents and purposes they are you know half australian um by blood and australian juniors almost you know 100 percent um players like that you know whether aren't necessarily going to go back to port moresby to play play for um, an nrl team there um you know i've comes to mind that 
that India, most populous country in the world, just about only have two individual gold medalists in the Olympics in their history. Um, I just think it is a quite a long road to, to, you know, to making it, especially if it was to be an all sort of PNG team or dominated by PNG players, it would take quite a long time, I think, to, to just really bet in that uh, quality that's that's needed to be a competitive NRL team. I think they've done quite a good job in the Queensland Cup, but again, that's mm-hmm. a, a big step up. Um, and so, I just so think. You know, no, no, got you. Yeah, I just think, um, I mean, I'm not saying it, it wouldn't happen. I'm just saying it's not an automatic slam dunk because of, you know, weight and numbers kind of thing. And, you know, I'd love yep. to see what, what actually does happen from that high performance uh, sort of level of involvement and in, in getting players into, into you know, obviously the resources with coaching and development, that makes a huge yep. difference. But it's, you know, it's not just a purely a, a weight of numbers, um, meaning automatic success thing. It's definitely not a weight of numbers. Um, meaning automatic success thing at all. I agree with that. So putting aside the getting attracting players, because once you get over the – the first thing you've got to get over is strategically does this make sense in terms of the money and player thing. Once you're over that, then you're into the operational – oh, well, operation, like I agree with you strategically, but operationally it can't work because of X or operationally, you know, that that's, tends to be how the argument goes. So on the players thing um, – the Hunters have been running a Queensland Cup level pathway program, right? You need an NRL level pathway program to get NRL talent. It needs to start at 14s and go 14, 16, 18, right through, right? Hunters are part of that. The Australian government um, gave PNG 5.5 million in July this year to set up that pathway, right? Which is another tell, I think, that this is all going to happen. Uh, they, they've they've allocated 5.5 million, which would be, by the way, more than the Warriors spent, um, I would guess, on a pathway from 14 through to first grade. That's on top of the hunters. On top of that, right? So once you and and it will take the kids coming into that pathway at 14s now. You know, it will be until they're 24 that you say this, this is a 10 year project, um, but it started started now. So. Um, I do think it's going to take that time because you're right, you can't just have numbers, but, you know, without that high-performance polishing, they never reach the level and there is not that, there's not been that level in Papua New Guinea. They've just started building it. Right? So I think you're going to see that in 10 years. You need to also deal with the visa, like I said, so you need to get sort of 18-year-olds who are promising to be able to have a visa fee free transition into the junior pathway, the Broncos or the, you know, if that's what the market does. But the government will sort that, I think. Um, and you, you need that NRL, like we've seen it with the Warriors this year, get Webby in, he sorts out the top level, Slade Griffin sorts out Cup, then you've got Adam Blair sorting out 16s, right? We, we all can see that and we know that in five years those raw kids are going to come out the other end of the, you know, the Blair, Griffin, Webby and be good footy players. That's, that's what needs to happen in PNG. If they don't do that, they will fail. They won't generate talent, but they will do that because everyone knows they need to, I think, and there's enough smart people with the bankroll to make it happen. And like I said, if they do that, there's no limit. Like at the moment, we've got desperate Aussie clubs who just can't stand up enough juniors in Sydney going to Christchurch or Auckland or other places to find it, right? <laughs> I'm telling you, the talent in 
Papua New Guinea, just in terms of like you could take, you could take, you could say, I'm just going to take the top five percent of 14 year olds running around in PNG, and there's still more of them in that five percent than there is in Auckland. You understand what I'm saying? Like than all of the 14 year olds playing league in Auckland. You know what I mean? The numbers game just lets you basically do a really rough kind of profiling into your funnel, and then you go from there. So um, anyway, that's um, that's probably as high as I can put the players thing. Like it's not without risk, but to me, it's the upside is enormous, and I'd be I'll be shocked if they if they can't get a pathway system set up in five years of churning out NRL quality out of that place. I'll be shocked, honestly. Yeah, it's extremely interesting. It'd be for me just about the most fascinating aspect of it. If you know you can get a squad dominated by Papua New Guinean players that is playing at you know an NRL standard and, and being competitive every week. I mean, you know, we've seen the the demographic of the NRL player base change massively in the past thirty years. The proportion of uh, Pacific Island players, um, you know, they dominate the league now. Um, well, the we've only kind of seen a handful of genuine Papua New Guinea uh, players come through the NRL and and be what you consider a you know a, a regular, even a regular NRL player. Um, you know, does that eventually translate, or is you know, is genetically does it is there a, a bit of a barrier there? Let, um, let's yeah. talk about that because I I ask people on Twitter to tell me what issues they thought needed to be addressed, and this one came up. Um, so, yeah, people say Papua New Guinean players are short. They don't suit the game. Um, okay, so two things. Firstly, Papua New Guinea beat Great Britain two years ago. Um, so, I mean, do we do we need to go further? But also, again, the volume of numbers. You could just walk into a Papua New Guinean school and say, right, there's 100 of you. Who plays rugby league? 50 step forward. Right. I'll take the 10 tallest, right? And again, you're still going to have more rugby league players doing that in Papua New Guinea than you do in New Zealand. Just taking the 10 tallest at each school, you'll still have more than you do in New Zealand, right? The, the numbers helps you with that sort of thing. Um, there's also a nutrition element. You get these kids into sports science in a high-performance pathway at 14, I bet you they're taller. Um, you know, there's there's a genuine nutrition element. So I think that's a bit of a furphy. Um but we're probably moving now into the like operational objections, right? So the first one is, you know, that's great, Fonz. You know, you're talking five, ten year pathway program, churning out talent. What happens till then? They're going to run last. They're not going to attract talent, right? What are they going to do? I mean, is that you know an obvious objection? Yeah, well, I mean, I think to be competitive at all um, and not be coming last straight off the bat, they need a you know a decent core of um, Players that already, been, you know, played 50 to 100 NRL games, and that's obviously, uh, you know, we saw the Dolphins put together what was what now looks like a pretty decent squad because they they went reasonably well, and there's a hell of a lot of experience on their books. Um, yep, they'll say the greatest coach of all time, but you know how did yeah how does the makeup of a of the inaugural squad is uh, very much the biggest question mark to begin with. So let me give you, there's two parts of the answer to this. The first part is this idea that, because we have this idea that if they're not competitive, the community won't engage behind them and therefore they'll probably fail and they won't get big crowds and they'll therefore flop 
and the the bid might die, right? That's what we think about with expansion teams in Australia. Uh, the Dolphins run last for three years. The community won't embrace them, right? That's spoiled Australian bullshit thinking, right? To Papua New Guineans, they've never beaten the kangaroo, the Prime Minister's 13. When the Prime Minister's 13 come over there, they mob the airport with tens of thousands of people who just want to see those players, right? They don't care if they beat the Prime Minister's 13. They're just happy to be involved with the game and see these people, right? And that, that it doesn't to them it won't i mean they'd like to win they're competitive and proud but it'll be a success that they're in the comp they don't need to win to be happy right in the early days certainly in that in that five to ten year period um they don't have the same expectation they don't have the same um kind of self-centered attitude around winning and so on for them this is a nation building project right being on the same stage as equals with these NRL teams is a win, and that will that will last a long time, right? Yeah. They're not like sulky Gold Coast like fans who you know, oh well, if they're losing, I'll go to the AFL. That's not this is not what we're dealing with up there, right? It's a totally different mentality. So winning yeah. is not as important in the early days as it is for any other expansion bid. I get that, but that doesn't necessarily mean to the average rugby league fan that they're going to be stoked to see this team that's getting flogged every week yeah, in the who, competition. Who, who cares? But what's well, it to you? Know, what, well, what do you mean? I mean, if I'm all of a sudden I've got a team in the competition that you know isn't particularly competitive, then to me personally, that's um, a downside. I mean, I, I get all the other stuff, but I mean, the average rugby league fan isn't going to Think but about I don't it. Need, it's such a wide-ranging. But I don't need your broadcast eyeballs to fund it. I don't need your money through the gate to fund it. I don't care about that. doesn't matter. Yeah, I'm no, getting 20. Yeah, but, I mean, you're asking my opinion on, on this club. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And, and, you know, that just there is, so you, I'm, I'm sure all of those, all of the, you know, the points that you're making overall probably make it a, a winner. I'm just saying there is a downside to that, and that you know it, it does affect the cachet of the competition. If all of a sudden this we've got this one team that is you know running okay. last every year and getting hammered. Okay, so that that one I'll come back to. So yeah, the like the spread and the quality of the competition potentially being overall degraded. Yep, we'll come back to that. Um, but but as long as we're clear that them running last doesn't affect their funding base or the community no, interest level of, of that team, right? But, but yeah, yeah, some people in Australia and New Zealand, um, you know, as they're having their third beer at the pub, might go, eh, this is a bit of shit, Papua New Guinea's losing, right? But no one in Papua New Guinea is going to be saying that, right? That's a purely first world reaction to them. Okay, so... Um, what else have we got in terms of the, the other part of the um, issue is they're going to start off in cans, I would say. So in that, I think if they've got any brains, which they do, the plan will be this. We're going to base ourselves in cans. That'll be the training base. For the next 10 years, we're in cans. While that pathway gets humming that I talked about taking five to 10 years to go, when we've got to a point over the next five to 10 years where we're generating homegrown talent that fills an NRL squad, I reckon it'll fill two or three personally, but fills an NRL squad, we're moving to Moresby, right? But until that time, we're based out in Cairns. We fly in, fly out of Moresby, say, 10 games a year. We take one game a year to Suva. 
because we're going to link up with the Kaviti Silvertails, right? They're going to be our other pathway team into this. Right? They're going to be number that feeding this club as well because people aren't as precious about moving from Fiji to PNG. So they're going to be the other part of this. But Aussies will, um, they're still going to have trouble attracting Aussie talent, but people will move to Cairns to do 10, like young blokes with no families who are on the up, you know, will move to Cairns, nice part of the world, 10 games in PNG, the rest is all in Australia, one in Fiji, probably magic round. There's your deal. You'll be able to do that. Now, that's not going to put you on a level playing field with Brisbane, you know, Melbourne and so on, but it's going to make it possible for you to, in that 10-year period, attract Aussies to a point where you can compete to some level. I can definitely see that as a, a intelligent sort of bridging step to eventually establishing a full-time club in Port Moresby. It does sort of seem a, a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit piecemeal, a little bit sort of, you know, uh, not quite the genuine Papua New Guinea team. Like there is a, some people who say, if you're going to do a PNG team, make it a PNG team or fuck off. Yeah. But, you know you know who those people are? People who live in Australia. There's yeah, no one in Papua New Guinea saying that. This is the thing. Like there's all this... Oh, I mean, if, if it's not my team in my town, I don't want to support it. They're not saying they're in Papua New Guinea. They're saying, what do we have to do to get a team? We'll do it. You know what I mean? It's not going to be like that. We're, we're projecting, oh, they're running last. Who these losers? I don't want to follow them. It's not how they think. We're going to think like that. You know, we've got to change that mindset around this. They know that um, you know, this is a big deal to them. They're happy to, to go through this incremental process, I think. Um, and I hear. Okay, so then what else? People say security risks. Yep, it's it's legit. Like um, when I was in Papua New Guinea, I had knives in my throat a couple of times. Right? It's not um, it's not a it's not as safe as Australia and New Zealand, and parts of it are downright dangerous, hundred percent. But we've we're currently running the Pacific Bowl there, where NRL players from the Fiji team, the Cook Islands team, and the Papua New Guinean team are there playing. We had a World Cup group there. QRL players um, fly up there to play the Hunters, right? So this is not like we've already proven the concept in my mind. It, it does have an elevated risk assessment, but the idea that we can't play 10 games there a year now in that sort of Cairns model is ridiculous. We already send NRL talent. We send the PMs 13 up there. We send them up there for a decade, two decades, right? That's So the idea that we can't do that, I just don't think flies. Um, they probably not if they are based in Cairns, uh, you know, and it is basically a, almost a fly-in, fly-out game. For now. Scenario. Yeah. For now. But, like, also, again, there's a certain amount of preciousness around some of this. Like, so one of my best mates um, had a wife and um, they didn't have kids then, but he, he lived and worked in PNG for three years, right, while she stayed here because there was good money there and it made sense for him in terms of his career. And there's thousands of Aussies who do that in the government, mining and other sectors. And you get paid danger money, right? We might have to talk about cap relief at some point if, if people are relocating there. But, um, you know, there's thousands who do it. And it's the, you know, generally younger men with high risk appetite who are unattached who go. And that pretty much describes rugby league players to me, right? Who, who, who get told you 50% more salary to go there. So even permanently based there, it's it's an issue, but it's not insurmountable. It's there's ways to solve that. They'll also they'll do things like 
um, build accommodation compounds adjacent to the stadium with their own um, airport. So you fly into, uh, you know, or, or their own, you know, um, infrastructure connection. So you pretty much just fly in, base their training camp, play, fly out the next day. Um, so the, you know, and they'll barbed wire AK-47 landmine the precinct if they have to, right, to make it work. So, it's you know, in, like... It seems that um, the internationals there, like, I mean, you... you if anyone that's uh, you know followed the game for a long time, here's the stories about the first time the Australian team did a full scale tour in 1991, and you know it sounded pretty hairy. Uh, mm. Even 94, the Kiwis the last time they oh, did a shit. tour there, but but I mean I think it, it sounds like it's it's a bit yeah uh, the whole operation's a lot safer now for to stage a footy game uh, than it was 30 years Look, ago. If if we have to put 100 SAS troops guarding the NRL compound adjacent to the stadium, they'll, they'll just do that. I'm serious. They'll probably just do that, right? I mean, and, um, you know, like there are – I've stayed in resorts in PNG that are really nice, you know, like they're, they're really nice, you know, and they literally – they had guys manning the perimeter of the resort with bows and arrows, and I said to one of them, hey, dude, look, why don't you just have a gun? And he's like, with the bow and arrow, I can kill two or three of them before they know I'm shooting. <laughs> right? um, you know, if <laughs> but if that's what it takes, I'll do it, and it will be safe because it's it's been managed that way. So it's an issue, but it's solvable, I think. Um, we've talked about recruitment, we've talked about government money getting pulled, and why I don't think that's a reasonable barrier. Um, what else we got? Any other sort of operational objections? before we end on the ethics of it. That's the last thing I want to talk about is the ethics of it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's probably related things operationally, but I think that kind of, they all sort of tie into those uh, broader headings that we've just gone over. I'm just quickly checking Twitter where I asked for people to tell me. Um, yeah, no, I think that's... Um, Kay Digger on Twitter said, look, isn't this just a geopolitical play? You know, why do we want to tarnish ourselves with that? So, yes, it is a geopolitical play from the um, Australian government. I don't think we need to get involved in that. I'm certainly not expressing an opinion on that here. It's the only issue, the only relevance of understanding that is, is the funding secure long-term bipartisan? And it is, right? So geopolitics is above sport. It's above all of this, all we've got to know is, are they fair income about doing this in the long term? I believe 100% they are because the drivers make a lot of sense and they're not going to change. Um, I think that's about it in terms of those. So let's talk about the ethics because the other um, pushback I saw from people is, well, Papua New Guinea needs hospitals. They need, um, you know, basic human infrastructure they you know like in terms of the hierarchy of things that are important an nrl team isn't there so why are we spending money on this right there's a, an ethical objection to this idea um so i mean i'm not going to get into a rabbit hole around this but i'm just going to say two things about it okay the first is it's the png government democratically elected who's asking us to do this so if we want to tell them no no we know better than you you shouldn't spend the money on this. You should spend it over here, right? That's fine, but it sounded a bit colonial to me, right? They're telling us they want us to help with this, 
So to me, at, you know, face value, we should probably help them with this if we're going to help them at all, right? The next thing is, like I said, it's 5% of what we spend a year. So this is not at the expense necessarily of other projects, right? It's just, it's a fraction. The flip side, I had a few, um, I, don't, I don't know if I call this ethical people like, why should I pay tax money to fund PNG's mm -hmm. footy team, right? Okay, you already do, champ, okay? Um, you, you pay money to fund all sorts of projects in PNG, right? You, you do. I'm talking specifically to the kind of person who write that post, yeah? You already pay the 500 million a year. If we take 25 of that and put it into footy, which you probably like, why are you whinging? You understand? Like it's it's not so. From the Australian side, it's not moving the dial on what we spend. On their side, they're asking us to put it here. I think it's an important nation building thing. And sort of, I'll end on this. Um, the Australians and Papua New Guineans, because we administered that territory. I mean, they fought in World War Two. We fought in World War Two with them. We administered the territory till 75. And since then, we pretended they didn't exist, right? We put up a barrier. You know, the, the Australian island with people on it that is the most northern is three or four kilometres from Papua New Guinea. Three or four kilometres, right? New Zealand, you guys are all the way freaking, like, these are our genuine neighbours, right, who we fought with. We ran their country till 75, then we pulled out. And it just, I think it's a good thing ethically that we become friends with them at a people-people level. And the best way to do that is through footy, you know. I think uh, footy brings people together. And I think, you know, I think there's a real good ethical argument to say that we can become mates with Papua New Guinea by playing footy. And so I think, you know, at the end of the day, that's one of the reasons I'm quite passionate about this. That's fair enough. So that's what I got, Phil. Uh, yeah. Phil, Will. You got any uh, any sort no, of I mean, last, I last pushbacks? No, no pushbacks. I think you've uh, you know covered this a lot more in depth than we've seen anywhere else uh, recently, for sure. Um, Even yeah, on I mean, Twitter. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there is a lot of reasons to be intrigued, excited about it, and and you know, you've, as you've explained, there's a lot of reason why it makes sense as well, particularly. Financially, I mean, it, it seems like a, you know, be one of the most solvent clubs around, just you know, purely based off the the government investment. Um, from an expansion point of view, and this is taking all of those things out of account, profitability and and all of that. It it sort of seems to me, you know, we're kind of rugby league is um, narrowed to this sort of eastern seaboard footprint, and then team in Auckland, um, and then we're sort of. So it feels like we're going, you know, a long way away to, to set up this team in Papua New Guinea. We're maybe, you know, getting a team in Perth, getting a second team in New Zealand consolidates things a bit more expansion-wise. Uh, I talked to Keith about, you know, AFL has, has been um, a bit more, I guess, measured in their approach. And they got two teams in WA, two in South Australia, and, and you know, teams in Queensland, New South Wales, and obviously lots in Melbourne, the other big leagues in Australia, um, you know, the cricket, the um, have, have teams in all those states, A-League and uh, NBL have a New Zealand team and teams in all those Australian states. So not to say that, you know, PNG isn't worthy. I just guess that was one of the sort of things that with PNG skipping the queue a little bit, I guess. 
Um, let, let me tell you this. So the, the AFL, the AFL will give their left nut to be able to put a team in PNG. Right? I'm sure they will. But, but to me, they're already ahead of the NRL as far as Mate, where they're about. They're about to put a team in Tasmania, right? Come oh. on, man. Come on. So people say PNG is negative. I think that's that's awesome. Yeah, well, yeah. Okay. Tasmania. So who's? Let me ask a couple of questions. What's the population of Tasmania? Well, that's not. That's beside the point. That's a, no, no. Hang know, on. Human, human, me, human me. What's the population of Tasmania? I don't know. What what would it be? Half a million, okay. uh, probably yeah, less. Yeah, yeah. Two inbreds and a dog. All right. So, which which economy is bigger, Tasmania or Papua New Guinea? Well, I mean, you know, you're getting off on a whole different tangent. I'm not talking about it being a, a um, economically more viable. I'm just purely, you know. How many how many players play in Tasmania versus, I mean, to, there's no metric on which the Tasmania AFL expansion is better than the PNG NRL expansion. The AFL will saying, give the, they will give their left nut. They will give their left nut to, to, to have this opportunity where the government pays them to move into a market of 11 million people um, with that kind of player base. The AFL's consolidation into these places is because they've got nowhere to go because no one wants to play their shit sport, right? That's the truth of it. The, the reality is we've got a broader horizon, which is the Pacific, and it's here on a platter because the governments have recognised that we should be better mates with Papua New Guinea and are saying we'll fund them to have a footy team in our comp. It's it, to me. It's like the, the AFL seriously are sitting there. The reason they got a Tasmania team with government funding is probably because the government knew how pissed off they'd be that they're helping us do this. So forget about those those jokers. They had it. They had it uh, too good for too long. The AFL. I think our time is coming now. It's coming, but would you would you acknowledge that you know expansion wise, they've done a better job as it stands right now with the clubs and where they are right now than the NRL has with all their failed clubs, all their teams that had to get axed. I mean, you know, the AFL, to me, they don't, they haven't had any clubs fold except the university club from, you know, 1930s or something. The um, AFL the AFL have, have one thing that changed the course of their history versus ours, and that is they didn't have a Super League war like we did. We, so nationally in Australia, before Super League, Rugby League was bitter, bigger than AFL. And... If you were betting in about 1990 or 92, which code is going to be the dominant national code, it was Rugby League. And then Super League set the game back here a decade or two. And during that period, AFL just carried on. Um, and that gap that they opened up during that period only started shrinking a few years ago. Um, but fundamentally... Um, and and if we did not have Super League, we would be streets ahead of AFL in this country. I've got no doubt about that. But we'll never know. Um, but you know, the the time I think now is to look at our game as the Pacific game, right? And they they can they can have the West Coast of Australia. Uh, do you see? Uh, for, do you think that the NRL is still working towards a twenty ten comp, and and if so, yeah. that. Perth is on the cards, maybe second New Zealand team, maybe another southeast Queensland team. Yeah, so to me, um, if we can get, I mean, at the moment, I think it's 26% of the NRL players are New Zealanders. Yep. Um, well, I see no reason why in 10 years a third of the comp can't be Papua New Guineans. 
right? And at, at that point, that player constraint is completely gone. We could have 22 teams on the player side. It just becomes a question of money. So anywhere where a broadcaster will pay to have a team will be able to, to have one. So we could have Perth, Adelaide, New Zealand to whatever you want, right? There'll be no player constraint if we can really open up Papua New Guinea in the, in the way that it should be opened up. And so it just comes down to a broadcasting dollars and all of that. But, yeah, I mean, I think it's a no-brainer that, and I think, I don't know, but I think the admin is thinking this, that we're going to 20, it's going to be Perth and New Zealand too. They're doing PNG first, right? And they will all complement each other into a 2020. They'll probably then be in a conference system where you sort of play your own conference twice and the other conference once or something like this that will sort of um, require a change to the structure. But, yeah, absolutely. It's not either or. PNG is not taking any one slot, not in, not in the medium term. Oh, very good. All right, that's Interesting it. times ahead, mate. Oh, uh, yeah. Wait with bated breath for uh, more news about the PNG bid. That's it. So anyway, that's um, uh, to all of you out there on Twitter. That's um, that's my two cents. So refer to the above. Um, all right. So what's what's next, Will? What are we doing uh, now? Just keep yeah, an eye well, out on the feed because this Warriors life could pop up at any time. Yeah, yeah. Still, um, still feel I'm decompressing a bit from the season, to be yeah. honest. Not quite ready to delve into the amazing 2023 season that was for the Warriors. Uh, enjoying a bit of international footy. Great win for the Kiwis the other night. And yeah. very much looking forward to two weeks in a row of New Zealand versus Australia. The first time since 20. I'm going to say it's the first time off the top of my head since 2016 that we've played Australia twice in the same year. So um, that's pretty exciting in and of mm. itself. And yeah, mate. based on what we've seen, it should be a great contest in Melbourne this weekend and Hamilton next. Yeah, I thought they looked good on the weekend, the Kiwis. I think um, good. Yeah. maybe a, a quick quick touch base after the final might be in order if um, if it's a humdinger. I think uh, I think that every every shot of beating Australia, the Kiwis. I mean, I know there's a weakness at hooker there, but across the park they look good. They look good, and I think Foran Foran's body holds up, and he can do that kind of work in the middle for another couple of weeks. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that weakness is as big as people thought. And uh, uh, yeah, yeah, very good yeah, um, yeah, exciting times. Um, awesome, yeah, mate. So enjoy your Pacific Cups and. Uh, Keep an eye on the PGNRL bid, and until then, go the Warriors.